Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The State of the World, featuring Roger Cohen, May Fong, Christina Lamb and Carrie O'Brien in conversation with Ben Knight, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Now, I'm going to run through the, uh, the introductions, but it is important that uh, we just acknowledge the breadth of experience that we do have here sitting on the stage. I'm going to go in alphabetical order. Roger Cohen, you'll see here in the grey jacket. Uh, you would, I'm sure, know him as a columnist for the New York Times, but he has an incredible resume of uh, foreign reporting. Uh, and also, with the New York Times, he was the foreign editor who oversaw the coverage in the aftermath of 9-11, which uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, began his career at Reuters, numerous accolades, but uh, here's just one, Lifetime Achievement Award at the International Media Awards in 2012. Uh, he's now turned his lens onto his own family in his most recent book and their post-Holocaust experience in The Girl from Human Street. Please welcome Roger Cohen. Moving to the Fs, Mei Fong is also a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's spent more than a decade uh, reporting in Asia, most notably as China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. She's a winner of Amnesty International's Human Rights Press Award. Uh, but she's here largely because she's the author of a fantastic book. It's called One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. In fact, on Sunday, May will be in a session with me and with uh, the ABC's own Jane Hutchin, who's also written extensively on this. We're going to take a deep dive into that issue, China's one-child policy. So if you're still around on Sunday afternoon, do join us for that one. But for now, please welcome May Fong. To the L's, Christina Lamb is the correspondence correspondent. She writes for the Sunday Times, but she's also the author of six books. She wrote I Am Malala with Malala Yousafzai and most recently has written The Girl from Aleppo about Nujin's escape from Syria to freedom. Uh, but the one that I really thought was uh, just a masterwork was Farewell to Kabul. It's pretty big, it's a doorstopper, but it is beautifully written. And if you want to know the litany of mistakes that were made in some of the most easy to access prose, I highly recommend it to you. And she's here with us today, Christina Lamb. Do I need to introduce you, Kerry? No. <laughs> <laughs> My former boss, Kerry O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have an extraordinarily broad brief here. It's called The State of the World. Now, I think what we've agreed to do was my idea, and they didn't really have much choice, but so what, what we thought we would be the best thing to do, and myself having just returned a couple of days ago from spending four weeks immersed in the Trump White House in Washington, is to take a look at what's going on while we're all focused and drawn in and absorbed and obsessed by what's going on in the, tr in the, in the Trump White House and what effect that focus that we're all paying, uh, you know, that we're all paying to it uh, is having on the ability of others in the world who have their own agendas to, uh, to go about doing what they're doing. As someone said the other day, it's a really good time to be causing trouble. Uh, and there are a number of threats. So uh, we're going to start with that. And perhaps I'll start with you, Christina. What's going on out there while we're all watching 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Thank you for starting me. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Kerry said I wasn't allowed to start with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
I mean, there's so many things going on. I don't remember a time as a foreign correspondent where there was so much going on. I think North Korea is obviously uh, a threat that they now have missiles that could reach here or uh, the US. But often things come from sort of most unexpected things. I mean, who saw 9-11 coming? So, you know, I, I there's a lot of things like I, I cover a lot of Boko Haram in Africa, and they're actually killing more people and abducting more people than ISIS, Daesh, but um, get very little coverage. Refugee crisis, that actually had been brewing, but that seemed to come from nowhere, and that has really seized Europe for the last couple of years. But really, I've never known a time where my own country has been <laughs> such a major issue. I mean, I've been in many different places in the last few months, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Qatar, um, as if we didn't need another Middle East crisis. You have Saudi and the UAE blockading Qatar. Um, and I was in Qatar the night of the British elections, and I interviewed the foreign minister of Qatar the following day, and I asked him if he would be asking the UK to mediate between all the different Gulf states, because we have very cozy relations with all the Gulfies. And he looked at me and he said, I think you've got enough problems. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, there are any number of different threats that are looming at the moment, from Russia to North Korea to, uh, to the Gulf, as, as Christina mentioned. They seem to be bubbling up to the surface. Is that a function of, as I've talked about, this, this massive spotlight that's shining on Washington at the moment? Well, Ben, I think in a way the focus, uh, the very heavy focus on President Donald Trump's uh, administration is, um, is justified because what we're seeing, mm. I think, is the crack up of the American-led world that has... Uh, ensured all of our relative peace and stability since, and prosperity since 1945. Um, for the first time, we have a president who has yet to meet a dictator he doesn't like or doesn't <laughs> elicit his sympathies. Uh, Democratic leaders like Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau seem much more suspect. Uh, he is eviscerating the State Department uh, uh, where he's and if you believe that diplomacy and military power are complementary and that that's important, uh, then this is a very worrying moment because it's all about the military. It's all about a big increase in military spending. And meanwhile, the State Department, 30% uh, of ambassadorships around the world are vacant. 20 of 22 assistant secretary positions are empty. And there's a proposed 30% cut in the State Department budget. And you have a leader of the free world who cannot distinguish between what's true and what's false, um, and uh, whose character traits are very apparent to all of us. And that's not just about the White House, that's about the whole world, because um, America was um, the anchor. And so you have a vacuum into which um, emergent great powers like China, um, revived powers like Russia, uh, are moving. And um, that means the tectonic plates of the world we live in are shifting. And they're shifting under um, or with an anchorless, um, impulsive, uh, irascible, uh, impetuous, unreliable uh, 
American leader who I think likes the idea of maybe a medium-sized war uh, that he could win. I don't know what that would be, but clearly Iran and North Korea, the, the danger signals are flashing much more uh, vividly than they were when he took office. So if I were to sum it up, I would say that it's a period of um, fragmentation and growing great power rivalry under a bellicose uh, US president who is doing his best to rip up the foundations uh, of the post-1945 world order. Now, whether the adults in the room, and there are a few, uh, and most recently we've had the exit after 10 days of Mr. Scaramucci and the arrival of uh, former Marine General Kelly, uh, who is trying to uh, bring a little bit of order to the White House playground. Now, whether he or he can succeed in that, I don't know. I did note on Twitter, just as I left, that I had managed to be there for the entire Scaramucci era from start to finish, which <laughs> I'm very <laughs> enormously proud of. <laughs> but, look, it's, it's, it is extremely serious, and you've mentioned a few things there. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, the, the signals are there. You have uh, British, uh, sorry, American warships firing warning shots at, at Iranians. In, uh, in, in the Gulf. Uh, you have the Russians building up troops on the borders of, of NATO countries. And of course you have China. May Xi Jinping must be struggling to believe his luck. <laughs> well, yes. Um, I, you know, the thing is, when, when what we're seeing, I, I, you know, there's the big theory, is when one major power withdraws, you know, there will be something else to fill the void. And certainly, uh, you know, for as far as China's concerned, um, this moment in um, American history is opportunity for them. Um, this is a time for them to expand their powers, uh, to strategize, to advance their um, relationships with allies, to build new relationships. Now, we've always, I think, lived in a world where, you know, there are several major powers, one or two, and for, of course, as Roger mentioned, you know, for the last, um, as far as most of us can remember, it's been America. Now, for people outside of America, they may not necessarily like it, you know, big brother chafing, you know, t coming in and telling people what they should do. But as he has said, it's been relatively stable. So what are we looking at in the future, is, uh, as far as China's concerned, is opportunity. So, um, you know, America is withdrawn from this big globalization push, the Trans-Pacific, the TPP trade agreement, um, uh, it's gone. So, and suddenly, I've gone from a world where I used to cover China, where press freedom was a problem, where uh, globalization was an issue, and suddenly I've gone back to America, where uh, journalists are na labeled as uh, enemies of the state, and, and suddenly it's China that's being the big push for globalization and openness, and it's, it's very discombobulating. <laughs> and um, so, what, and of course, you know, when a new power takes over, they also um, have a certain set of values that impose. So one of, I think, the more interesting things is, you know, the so-called Pax Americana has been a certain set of values, you know, not necessarily just gunboat diplomacy, but also the issues of human rights, um, you know, press freedom, uh, the First Amendment. And, and China's set of values are going to be uh, slightly uh, different, you know. Their, their idea, def definition of human rights is not necessarily America's definition of human rights. You know, they'll say, well, we believe this. And um, so, th but they're expanding. So Africa is, you know, basically um, many, many alliances. China has this major global initiative with this one belt, one road, which some of you may know of, which is this big, very ambitious um, plan to build this maritime and land routes 
all throughout um, major parts of uh, Middle Asia. And um, I think it's been likened in a way to the Marshall Plan or the Colombo Plan. Um, this is this time of ascendance. So we are uh, definitely um, changing. And, um, and of course, you know, for the Chinese, it's great. For the rest of us who maybe not, don't necessarily subscribe to some of these values, um, it is a bit troubling. So Kerry, here we are, sitting down here, having essentially since the end of the Second World War relied on our, the United States as our major ally and the, the crux of our security in the world. But if anyone read the transcript that the Washington Post published today <laughs> of the phone conversation between Malcolm Turnbull and Donald Trump, well, you, can't, you can't imagine linking your security to a guy who can't even understand basic concepts, even when they've been explained three times. Well, the thing that I first thought of when I read that transcript, which really confirmed everything that Malcolm Turnbull had denied. <laughs> um, and, and Trump had denied. Mm. Yes. Yeah, but he... But people in there were saying, actually, he's only saying that publicly. He wants you to know that he told Australia we were fuckwits. <laughs> uh, so uh, the image that I had in my head thinking of that conversation was not too long afterwards, the same two men actually meeting face to face for the first time on an old battleship, or it might have been a, an aircraft carrier in, uh, in New York Harbour, uh, where our Prime Minister was almost on his knees and was not presenting anything like the image we would like to think of our Prime Minister even talking to our great and powerful ally, uh, but certainly not showing that kind of deference to a man who had addressed him in the way he had in their first conversation with a country which has basically put its hand up and said yes pretty much every time America has asked for anything. A couple, couple of exceptions, but pretty much that's correct. At least he didn't hold his hand. Nearly. <laughs> well, he, he did, but not, lo not quite lovingly. Um, <laughs> But the, 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 the bigger thing for me, Ben, is, um, is uh, of course what's happening with China is incredibly important to the future dynamics of the strategic world and the giant mess of the Middle East is incredibly important, not just for what's happening there but the extent to which it's driving its citizens around the rest of the world uh, not to be taken up by the rest of the world and, and the sort of dynamic that that throws up. I think there are massive questions about the future of democracy and that might sound a little bit far-fetched but if you actually analyse, if you actually believe in democracy and you want to think that this country has its democracy guaranteed into the indefinite future, if Americans want to feel that about America, if you're living anywhere in Europe and you're looking at the stresses and strains uh, and the manifestations of democracy in those countries and the disillusionment that's coming through and the cynicism that the public have for their governments, the failure of leadership in most of the countries that we're talking about, where you've got an Angela Merkel standing up as a kind of shining beacon of leadership compared to many others around her, and you've got little glimmers of light with the recent election in France and, and, uh, and Trudeau in Canada. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, and, and the media uh, as a cornerstone, a healthy media as a cornerstone of a healthy democracy, we're watching However long it lasts, I don't think any of us knows, but the quality of media is under assault and in decline. Uh, so, and and I, I think that one of the reasons Donald Trump actually made it into the White House, quite apart from the help of, the Soviet, of, of Russia, uh, or uh, by whatever other means, the manipulation of social media and so on, uh, one reason he actually stumbled into the White House in the end 
is because there are so many angry white Americans who had grown used to having uh, their job as a secure underpinning of their lives and you've got this guy promising to restore jobs that will never be restored, jobs that have disappeared for good. And you've got that manifestation in this country, you're seeing it in Britain, you're seeing it in Europe, and you are seeing it anywhere uh, where um, uh, digitisation is making its inroads, wherever it is disrupting. And with each year that passes, the disruption is greater, and one of the great manifestations of that disruption is the nature of work, which is changing not just in front of our eyes, but under our feet. That rug is being recreated and then pulled out from under us again. And I cannot think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone else on this panel, I can't think of a country, certainly that I'm aware of, where the leaders are bold enough to say to their public, the people they are supposed to be representing, there are massive shifts going on in the nature of work which is one of the fundamentals of our existence. And, and those shifts are going on in ways that none of us can really understand. Some people are declaring that, that, that it's going to throw up a whole raft of new jobs which will be the answer. Many more people are saying that we could get to a day in the not too distant future where the majority of people will be looking, working either not at all for the rest of their lives or working way less than they have in the past or than they want to and sorry, I know we are your leaders, but we don't have the solutions either, but at least we've got to start talking about it. So Can I interject at this point? <laughs> I think, so one, what you mentioned, Kerry, was interesting in the sense that what we see in terms of um, Brexit, what we see in terms of Trump is a sort of a backlash against globalization, um, the discontent of uh, a dispossessed uh, a certain kind of a um, faction of society, primarily white, primarily male, um, they've lost jobs, um, and there's a certain amount of sympathy for that. But just to interject another sort of a viewpoint is globalization hasn't actually been bad for everyone. No. So if you look at the actual numbers, um, it's actually been really great for a lot of people. It's just that they are not of the white complexion, you know. <laughs> so uh, globalization has been great for China. It's been great for lots of parts of Asia and Africa. Um, but what we are seeing right now is, I don't know, possibly the last gas of this one um, powerful section of fighting the last uh, bastion of holding on to what they can have um, before maybe the tides sweep in the other direction. Well, we have seen that, that swing back, haven't mm -hmm. we, uh, from, from Brexit, whether it was just because there weren't, you know, people didn't get out and vote and we ended up with a freak result and you could argue the same thing about Donald Trump. But uh, I just would interest, be interested in your thoughts on whether we're starting to see a swing back from that, that swing to populism. Any I think it's too early to, yeah. to say that, Ben, and I think, uh, yeah, I think Kerry's absolutely right, I and mean, there is a crisis of Western democracies, and uh, you're right, May, inequality globally has, has evened out somewhat, but inequality within Western societies has gone like that, and I think that along with impunity, the impunity that followed the meltdown of 2008, the impunity about the Euro crisis, I think there's just a feeling among a lot of people that the system is rigged, it's rigged by the people who control and understand globalization. And the results we saw, Trump, Brexit, uh, what's been going on in Hungary and Poland, uh, these are all manifestations of people saying, enough, basta, we've had it. 
We don't care who tells us which way we should vote, whether it's Barack Obama or the governor of the central bank or whoever it may be. We want to blow up the system. We want disruption. Um, this is not working. So that, I think, is, I think Western societies have to take, take that on, uh, recognize that Trump still has pretty significant support um, in the United States, and try to find ways to offer greater opportunities to more people. I would push back a little on... Um, you know, the collapse of the press. I think, if anything, the opposite... No, I didn't say collapse. Not collapse, but, you know, the, the, the weakness... Decline. Of the weakness, decline of the media. I think right now in the United States... Um, well, the New York Times has 600,000 new digital subscriptions, if I may talk about my own newspaper a minute, in the last six months. I mean, Trump has been a boon uh, to the media, <laughs> and, uh, you know, fake news and all that, and Steve Bannon telling us all to shut up, and you mentioned enemies of the people... Uh, there's been a reaction, and a very powerful reaction, and uh, the Washington Post has a lot of money because it's now owned yes. by the owner of Amazon, Steve Bezos, so there's this... Um, uh, so he's a, he's a benign force, Roger. Yeah, he, he is. He might not no, be. I think he's very... No, I but the example that yeah. he sets to other countries, I mean, everybody looks to the United States yeah. as to sort of emulate, and actually you mentioned Macron, and we in the UK, I think a lot of us were envious of the French having Macron and this sort of feel-good factor. But actually, Macron, one of the first things he did was cancel the traditional Bastille Day press conference, I believe, the first um, prime minister to do that in, in France. And it was cancelled on the basis that his spokesman said that the type of politics that Macron uses it doesn't submit well to the traditional question and answer forum of a and press conference. And then he invited <laughs> Donald Trump <laughs> so uh, so to the festivities. Um, but but I, I think I think that the, um, the 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 state of the quality of media around the developed world, let's say, for the moment, um, it would vary from country to country, and and I would suggest. Roger, that even if the New York Times is doing well with subscriptions, there would be many other media outlets in America that yeah, aren't. Just to and, and, and sorry, just very quickly, mm -hmm. because this is important. Where the New York Times has a global brand and is therefore able to sell its subscriptions around the world, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age aren't, mm -hmm. and that would be true for many other outlets in many other countries. Mm -hmm. So they are confined in their struggle to trying to maintain an economic strength which right. is in decline. Yeah, I think I just wanted to bring this really good quote that came out of a recent Vanity Fair story that was talking about how the Trump um, administration has been incredibly good for both Washington Post and the um, New York Times, and they, they liken it to like one of the great battles, you know, uh, coming forth one of the best times and periods in journalism. Or is it, you know, given the media landscape elsewhere? Is it a situation where it's two bald men fighting over a comb? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, well was, it's not my quote, weird. but it's a great <laughs> quote. <laughs> so look, we could jump off into any any number of directions here, but I'd, I'd, I would like to get some of the panel's views on uh, on what are really, as we've as we've touched on, some very serious and potentially dangerous things that are going on out there while we're all you know, looking at, at, uh, at Donald Trump and scratching our heads. I'm scratching now. Um, it, it, I got to uh, Washington four weeks ago and my first day at work was uh, a North Korean ICBM test and they did another one before I left and that just seems to have 
uh, dropped off as well because no one in Washington seems to either know what to do about it or seems interested in, in doing anything about it. And Roger, you talked about the well, adults in the room. I mean, look, you've got a guy in the White House who's lazy. Uh, he has no idea what's in the Iran nuclear deal, for example. I mean, that transcript where you see uh, Prime Minister Turnbull trying to explain uh, you know, three, four, five times what this is about, and Trump just does not get it. And he wants to rip up the Iran nuclear accord. This is dangerous. This is very dangerous. Um, the Iran nuclear accord, um, far from perfect, but Iran has gone backward with respect to a number of centrifuges, a huge number of inspections. Uh, it's ring-fenced, this problem, for the next 15 years. He wants to rip it up. He wants to rip it up for absolutely no good reason, just because somebody's told him. He's gone around saying it's a lousy deal, it's a terrible deal. He has no idea what's in it. No. He had no idea what's in his health, was in his, the Republican health proposals. He has absolutely no idea. And the only solution, or quasi-partial solution, I can think of for North Korea is an Iran-like deal. I mean, once a country has mastered the nuclear fuel cycle, you can't bomb it out of their heads. You can't. We live in the real world. Uh, North Korea is where it is now with its nuclear program. And, so and the best outcome would be a negotiation that led to the ring fencing uh, of that program. In Not identical, of course, but some Iran like outcome. I don't think the president is interested in that. And I think if he does go ahead and rip up the Iran uh, nuclear accord, then really all bets are off. Mattis, the defense secretary, who's a restraining force in many areas on Iran, uh, is very hawkish because of his experience of seeing uh, US um, servicemen and women blown up by Iranian-manufactured IUDs. So. Uh, I think Iran is a very dangerous potential flashpoint, and we could well see the White House move on ripping up that accord uh, in the next several months, and that, that will be dangerous. I would say what he's doing there. I was in Iran for the elections in May, and the night of the election results, so okay, they're not exactly free and fair elections because all the candidates have to be um, approved by the... Uh, Guardian Council, which comes under Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader. But 73% um, of people voted for um, Rouhani. And there was incredible scenes that night, that Saturday night in Tehran. People dancing in the streets, singing, uh, men and women dancing together. It was really, it felt like a revolution had happened. It was really incredible. And that was the same night that um, Trump was in Saudi Arabia with that golden <laughs> orb um, and um, railing against Iran and, and saying and accusing them of all sorts of things. And he's in Saudi Arabia where they don't have any elections. And I'm thinking, you know, how can this be if you've got this right that um, Iran, what you're doing by attacking them and making all these threats is giving power to the hardliners who are instead of giving power and support to Rouhani, who is relatively moderate. Um, so I think it's very dangerous what he's done. And it was achieved through diplomacy. And Roger, you've talked about the gutting of the State Department. And if you believe what is written in the papers, uh, Mr. Tillerson's looking about getting out of the job already, having not even served out Yeah, people are talking about a Brexit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but look, 
just just to uh, swing it back to to North Korea for a moment. It's interesting. You talk about the Iranian nuclear deal that was done. It was Russia that made that happen. It's Russia that took responsibility for removing uh, the nuclear fuel and and returning it in an, you know a, a safe state. May is China interested? in helping to prevent a North Korea or in containing a nuclear North Korea? I think it's a bit of a balance in a sense. China obviously does not want a North Korea that is um, maybe, um, you know, has uh, achieved full nuclear capabilities. Um, it's dangerous. But it is not necessarily in China's interest to do America's bidding and just rein in um, Kim Jong-un because um, strategically it's been very good for China to have this kind of a rogue state, um, you know, who sort of um, acts as a buffer for it, you know, because if North Korea weren't there, then South Korea and American military bases would come for it, and you'd be on your doorstep. So f as far as China's concerned, this kind of a delicate balance and interplay has given it tremendous advantage on a global stage, um, you know, for uh, many issues where perhaps other countries, uh, on, including America, would have wanted to swung really hard uh, on, on, on sanctions, on um, trade, um, uh, trade wars, perhaps. They have to take into account, well, this is, uh, China is North Korea's best friend, they have sway, we, we can't possibly be too hard. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's kind of interesting to see what the solution will be, but I think it's very clear that China may make, you know, some uh, concessions. It may do some things like maybe cut oil, um, you know, shipments, but it's very hard to imagine that they would just say, well, okay, re I mean, one is a question of whether they would want to, and two is the other question is whether they can, because while they have had very strong influence over North Korea, um, there's some question marks as to whether that has been receding in the past. Some of their um, allies within the North Korean uh, fam royal family, ki the Kims, have um, uh, have have you know lost their power or been killed. So um, yeah, so one, will they want to? Most likely not. And two, can they? Yeah. Kerry, unless Trump does something completely irrational and totally dangerous, it seems to me that his presidency is going to set America back substantially in terms of its capacity to contain North Korea uh, because uh, China is absolutely not going to tolerate uh, the subjugation of North Korea, even if that was possible, uh, because, as you say, it leaves their flank utterly exposed. They're simply not going to tolerate it. South Korea is crapping itself about the prospect uh, of a backlash from North Korea that's played out on South Korea and Seoul is spitting distance almost. So no distance at all uh, for the missiles with a million highly armed individuals just across the border. So those people who really understand the game, uh, pretty much all of them better than I do, uh, would know that, um, if I can put it this way, that Donald Trump is pissing in the wind. It's basically all coming back at him. It's hollow uh, I mean, threat, he, am I know, right? He had this momentary infatuation with Xi, right, after the dinner at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, he thought she would just go home and do exactly what he said, because when President Trump says something, then people have to do it, and I'm the greatest guy in the world, and how can anybody <laughs> not do it? I'm Donald Trump. And they had a beautiful and, uh, you know, Now, of course, welcome to the real world, Mr. President. Um, Xi Jinping, for the reasons may just outlined, didn't do what President Trump thought he'd asked him to do. And then he tweets. Did you all see the tweet um, a couple of days ago? I'm so angry with China. 
uh, Xi Jinping could do exactly <laughs> what I told him to do, and he hasn't done it. And, and it's an outrage. I mean, this is the level we're at. Mm. Hey, this, President this Trump, they, we the United States launched missiles, right, Ben, in Syria um, against President Bashar al-Assad after he used chemical weapons. Um, personally, I thought President Obama should have done that long ago at the time he set the red line. That's a whole other story. But, of course, with the evisceration of the State Department, it was totally meaningless. Happened in a complete vacuum. It was, wasn't coordinated with anything or with anybody. Yeah. Uh, there was no follow-up to put pressure on Bashar al-Assad. And then a member of his cabinet, Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, said this took place during the famous dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Xi, right? Mm -hmm. And so Wilbur Ross, they said, oh, yeah, the bombing. Uh, well, that was in lieu of after-dinner entertainment. In lieu of, so that's where we are with the United States of America, that a cabinet member can describe a missile attack in the Middle East as in lieu of after-dinner entertainment. And I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when that's the case, um, it's quite easy to imagine a spark. I think it's very difficult uh, to exaggerate and very easy to underestimate the capacity for Donald Trump to do damage not just to the image of the United States in the world as the world's great supposed peacemaker or peacekeeper, uh, but just, I mean, practically every corner of the world is going to be affected by this the longer he stays in that job. It has got to the point in the United States where um, not just Republicans will be cheering when Vice President Pence actually becomes president if that happens. And that, to me, is well, just... Well, not American women. <laughs> no, no, no. The only good thing I would say about President Trump, and I admit this is kind of clutching at straws, <laughs> but he's so unpredictable that no one knows what he's going to do, right? And so another country, which actually has 200 nuclear weapons, Pakistan, and has been a big problem for the world, has, was behind al-Qaeda and the Taliban, um, is completely seized by not knowing what to do because they're, they're scared of kind of how he's going to react. So actually, they've been really quiet at the last a few months compared yeah, to what they were doing before. But unpredictability uh, on a world stage is a bad thing, right? Because what your neighbors are going to do is everybody's going to start arming up. Um, President Trump <laughs> thinks it's a good thing. He, it he thinks he kept saying chaos, about Obama, we've been way too predictable. Well, and here's a... Uh, yeah, I mean, the issue... Yeah, I think there is a question with Trump. Will the incompetence, the sheer incompetence, trump, so to speak, everything else? And somehow... And, you know, Napoleon uh, would ask of his generals, uh, you know, people would describe their qualities, and he would say, yeah, but is he lucky? Is he lucky? And I... I think Trump is a lucky man. He's a lucky man. I don't know how much that luck... Lucky, it's lucky just not a hunch. Gone to jail. I just a feeling about him. He's a lucky man. So who knows? I mean, the global economy is expanding at a rate it hasn't for quite some time right now. And, of course, the markets are doing what they're doing. And, uh, but not in, not in a way that's... Um, you know, we'll see. I think the last president... Uh, that reminds me is of having some of the Trump characteristics. The last president that was as disengaged uh, intellectually as Donald Trump seems to be was Ronald Reagan. 
This is uh, Reagan who uh, relied, relied very heavily on his advisors, but one difference between them, he actually hung on to them because he realised he needed them mm. and he mostly took their advice. But James A. Baker, who was his chief of staff at one point in the presidency, had provided Reagan with a very substantial but easy to read brief on a, a, the, situ the economic situation in the States to prepare for a big economic summit and he realised on the morning of the summit that Reagan had the read, read the brief and in a very tactful way he said, Mr President, I realise you haven't read your brief. This is an important conference. And Reagan said, but Jim, Sound of Music was on last night. <laughs> yes. And he's, and he's reputed to have won the ended the Cold War, so... <laughs> I, I do want to leave the allotted 10 minutes for your questions and we're going to get to that in about seven minutes but I also want to finish up on, uh, it touches on a number of things that we've talked about here today which is, uh, you know, angry white people whose wages haven't gone up and feeling like they've lost their place in the world and of course all these other trouble spots existing, we haven't even talked about the longest war that most of our countries have ever been involved with, uh, but also that what these potential future conflicts might cause in terms of refugees who will be knocking on the door and wanting their piece of it. So I just wanted to, Christina, if you could pick up on, uh, on this issue which is, uh, which is out there for us and is possibly going to become bigger. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel that we don't know how to end wars anymore. So all of these wars I've been covering, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, just all seem endless and uh, creating large numbers of refugees, as you know. There's been a lot of focus on the Syrian refugees, but actually the second biggest number of refugees is from Afghanistan. And the war there has got worse, uh, more people being killed this year than any time. We're all now, I mean, this is another example of Trump. Um, Trump at the NATO conference told all our countries that America was going to send more troops to Afghanistan and therefore wanted other NATO countries to do so. So we all agreed and have increased. So you've sent or sort of sending more troops, the UK are. And actually, America hasn't in the end. Nobody knows what they're doing. So <laughs> this agreement well, Trump's was talking made. of withdrawing all US troops. Yeah, he's talking yeah. about sending mercenaries now instead of troops. So That's right, outsourcing um, the war. Yes. Mm. Um, and uh, to be honest, I mean, you know, at one point we had 140,000 troops in Afghanistan and that didn't defeat the Taliban. So sending 5,000 more really wasn't going to make that much difference, I believe, anyway. But, you know, these wars are all carrying on. It's leading to more refugees. Um, in all of these countries, the one thing everybody seems to have, we talked earlier about globalization, is a smartphone, even in remote villages in Afghanistan now. I've never forgotten going to a really a kind of remote village in Samarkand and finding all these men there who are on Facebook. <laughs> um, and... So one thing everybody can do is look at the outside world and see that life seems to be better there and therefore leave their countries. And I always find it a bit funny that um, NATO in their legacy video about what they did in Afghanistan cite as an um, achievement that there are now 19 million mobile phones in Afghanistan. Well, that's leading to people <laughs> leaving the country. Yeah, and uh, can I say, yeah, just leading off on what you're talking about cell phones and wars, the thing is, we keep thinking, okay, th this is a literal kind of war with guns and weapons, but, you know, there's every possibility the third phase of warfare that we haven't really looked at, which is already happening, is cyber warfare. 
you know. Um, yes. And th this is, uh, again, one issue where I think the U.S. Is, has been lagging in. And, you know, so you might already argue that that's already begun with the Russian meddling, uh, with hacking and uh, democratic processes in several countries. And, you know, this is a president who has benefited from that. So he is not looking to put a, a stop to it. He certainly denigrated his own intelligence agencies and resources. So this is the new front that we aren't even looking at or are doing anything about that is possibly going to have significant implications for all of us in the future. There's one remarkable fact I, uh, I pulled out of your book, uh, Farewell to Kabul, Christina, which is that more has been spent on rebuilding Afghanistan than was spent on the Marshall Plan post-World War II. Yes, that's Which true, and you, you and very little to show for it. Uh, yeah. If you went there, you would <laughs> wonder. Yeah, I, I think. Um, yeah, I think Ben actually, you know, for all the economic anxiety that, you know, jobs disappearing, new forms of work or no work, I think the cultural anxiety and the cultural clash is greater um, in the United States, possibly also in Australia. I don't know. I think societies, Western societies, are. Uh, asking themselves, you know, what, what is our identity? Uh, who are we? Um, if a lot of migrants come in, you know, what do we become? There's a tremendous anxiety about this. And in the United States, there's an absolutely frontal cultural clash uh, between red states and blue states. There's reached a point, uh, because we're all in our ideological canyons these days, and we, we go to the websites and and uh, networks that comfort us in the views we already hold. And I think it's reached um, a pitch that is, that is very dangerous. There are no avenues of communication open anymore. And it's, um, you know, to people in Indiana or, or Kansas, uh, it's all, you know, it's white lives matter too. It's choose your gender bathrooms. Yeah, really. Um, uh, America's a great country. Why did, uh, why did this black president talk us down. And, and that's what Trump, I think if Trump plugged into one thing and he has intuitions, much more than economic anxiety, it was this cultural anxiety. And he rode that cultural anger, that cultural bandwagon to victory. And just wrap that up for us, Kerry, before we go to questions here well, in Australia. Uh, Roger, I was just, uh, I'm, you know, as a complete outsider to what's going, but an interested observer certainly in what's going on in the United States. Um, and I watched and I read uh, the New York Times daily and regularly the Washington Post. And I'm, I'm assuming that they were pretty much, this is going through the election campaign, and I'm assuming that they pretty much would have reflected the other quality broadsheets around America. And yet Donald, and they were, I've never seen such an open campaign, such a partisan campaign against uh, a candidate for office as I saw there. Daily, the New York Times was running a list of his lies. They were just into him, as I've never seen before, but still he won. Well, they it took us a long time to, yeah. Yeah. It just took us a long time to say he lied, but once we did, it was like yeah. we liberated. Yeah. We yeah. But, but, but they, were still, yeah. they were still yeah. um, very much declared in their opposition yeah. to Trump yeah. on yeah. a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in office, um, uh, even though Trump's popularity has dropped, uh, the fact is that uh, the United States, the, the, the Republican Party, has the White House, both houses of Congress, two-thirds uh, of the state legislatures and two-thirds of the state governors. And even though Trump's popularity is in decline, the party's popularity is not. Or if it is, it's not by much. 
but but the papers have been, I mean, the New York Times have been running very strongly against the Republicans in the Congress as well, apparently without a lot of impact. Now, have I got that wrong? No, I don't think you've got that wrong, and I think uh, liberal America was um, contemptuous of um, Trump's supporters in, in a, I mean, nobody was ever persuaded by being made to feel stupid. And um, there is, uh, I mean, that's why I got very tired, you know, I was sitting in New York during the campaign and I got tired of going to dinners where, you know, everybody was competing for the funniest, most effective put down for Donald Trump. Meanwhile, he already had 13 million votes, you know, in the primary. So, um, you know, I think our job is to get out there. So, it's uh, uh, I, I, you know, I think, you know, one has to make the effort to, to understand and to recognize there are real issues that are making a lot of decent and, and smart Americans uh, angry with the coast. And I certainly hope the Democratic Party uh, comes up with a candidate from a state like Colorado, uh, or certainly not from the coasts. I mean, you know, the whole Pelosi, Clinton, uh, that's not going to fly. Uh, Democratic Party, I think, needs somebody, uh, I would say, from the West. It's time for questions, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't just spent the past 50 minutes bitching about Donald Trump, which is a good thing, as cathartic as that would have been. But we're going to go to your questions. I think we've covered some good territory here. We're looking forward to hearing uh, what you want to raise with us. Uh, if we have a question, um, please keep it to... Uh, up the back there, there's a hand up. Please keep it to 140 characters or less, <laughs> not words, characters. Okay. Go ahead, sir. This is a simple one, uh, possibly for Kerry. Kerry, what do you think Australia's position should be if Trump did start a middle-sized war? Should we go with them or not? <laughs> well, uh, Malcolm Turnbull rings me all the time about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait until it happens. Look, I, I, I don't think... I, I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. And funnily, this is one of the great ironies of what's going on in America now, that perhaps... Uh, the more generals they get in the White House, the safer we're going to be from Donald Trump because even he apparently has decided that he needs, he needs the hand of the military to, uh, to, to, run, a, uh, to run a reasonable office. Um, but he also thought Scaramucci could be his press officer. Mm. And well, You haven't got time, Roger, but I'd have loved you to tell us the story of, from your recent column about, his, about Scaramucci's codpiece <laughs> in, in, in relation to the size of Donald Trump's, shall we say, ego. But so, uh, just, just to pick up on that, I mean, Donald Trump is the commander-in-chief of a country that is essentially leading a war that we're already involved in and, yeah. and potentially other conflicts which are uh, already mm. going on, which we are in involved in as well. So we're already there. What in the, I, I see that, that we're, we're already committed to... Look, uh, I, I don't think this is going to happen. Uh, I'd like to think it could, but I think there is a really serious case to be made, a really serious pragmatic case which is in the interests of the United States as much as the rest of us, for America to get the hell out of the whole of the Middle East. Um, okay. And, and had, that, had they not been tied to their security through to protect oil sources for all the time that they have, uh, had that withdrawal happened, you know, two or three decades ago, the world and America would be in a very different place right now. Christina? Um, I don't agree with that. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, in Iraq, you know, uh, um, 
So at the moment, driving, just driven ISIS out of Mosul and now trying to get them out of Raqqa in Syria, I think this is really important to do. I don't think that's, uh, nobody thinks that's the end of ISIS. They're an ideology and this is one of the problems that we're not fighting. That's one of the things that's changed. We're not fighting nations or armies anymore. We're fighting ideas. Um, um, and of course, you know, some people argue the more you drive them out of those places, the more that they'll send people to the West to start bombings um, in our countries. Um, so I, I do think it's really important to try and finish some of these conflicts. But the problem to me, and we've got wrong in all of these places, is that what you do afterwards, how do you administer these places? It's no good just um, driving out, defeating a dictator, or driving out a terrorist group. You have to be able to provide some kind of services to the people afterwards. And you know, in Afghanistan, we all got into this situation where our forces were fighting to prop up a government that was um, incredibly unpopular and considered by many Afghans to be the bane of their lives because it was so corrupt and was demanding money from them. And so it was very easy for the Taliban to go into places and say that we'll sort all of this out. And the same thing is happening in all of these. We have five minutes left. I do want to take one more question. There was a gentleman uh, sort of over there who shot his hand up very quickly. So yes, you, sir. Um, so we can get a microphone. Oh, no, is that... Uh, anyway, the that gentleman up the uh, up the back there, he, he, he was very quick off the mark, so I, I feel beholden to him. It's an interesting, 55 minutes in, and that's the first no. mention we've had of ISIS, which wouldn't have been the case this time last year, I'm, I'm very sure. Anyway, go ahead, okay. sir. Okay, a very quick question. Um, the role of um, Fox News and Murdoch in this whole situation with Trump. That's not a quick question, but go ahead. <laughs> but it was a quick question. <laughs> not a quick answer. <laughs> oh, look, you know. I'm, I'm probably the last person to ask about this. I can tell you what I think about the 70% of Australia's newspaper outlets that Rupert Murdoch controls and what he does with them, which is fundamentally, un uh, fundamentally unhealthy to this democracy. He seems to have, he seems to have wielded um, an influence in the United States way beyond the reach of Fox. Uh, it's like, it's like the, the power of Alan Jones in this country whose power really is illusory, but he's woven the illusion to the extent that every political leader, state or federal, who has to deal with Alan Jones treats him with bloody reverence because they actually think he's got power. I don't, I don't understand how he has managed to come to that level of influence in America, Roger. Well, so I'm going to jump to, to Mayhick. Mate, you worked for him for uh, 10 years. Well, well, by the time when I worked for the Wall Street Journal, it didn't belong to Murdoch. Uh, uh, it belonged, you know, in part to the Bancroft family. Uh, however, in 2007, which when he made the offer to buy the Wall Street Journal, I was actually one of the people who went on a record and wrote and said that this is a bad yeah. idea, that in particular their record in China was uh, not good. They tended to kowtow to the leadership. Uh, I'm not working for the Wall Street Journal anymore. Um, <laughs> so, um, my, I, so I guess my point is, yes, uh, he has exercised a huge disproportionate influence across the world, in the UK as well, and US, but it, in a sense, it almost feels like um, he spawned other monsters now, like Breitbart, you know, which are even more radical. Uh, and so in a sense, it, it feels maybe perhaps that Fox has receded a little bit and you've gotten much more extreme views out there. Um, 
And yeah, I, I can see you're dryly jumping on this one. <laughs> no, I just was thinking about the Wall Street Journal. I also worked for a time, but long ago in the 80s. And, uh, you know, the journal just had an interview with President Trump. And oh, yeah. And the journal did not publish the transcript. That's right. Its own transcript of its own interview with the president. And it took a leak from the journal to Politico to finally get this transcript out there. Well, and something, is, something is rotten in the state of a newspaper when it doesn't publish its own interview with the President of the United States. I mean, that is absolutely clear, and there can't be any <laughs> doubt or question about that. And then when you read the transcript, the degree of chumminess between the editor of the Wall Street Journal and not only President Trump, but uh, um, Ivanka, who happened to walk in, and they were talking about their kids both being named Arabella. And then the journal had left out some incredible details in the story they did write about the president, such as President Trump saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's really amazing. Uh, you know, when you get on the phone with, uh, like, the president of uh, Indonesia or countries like Malaysia, what I say to them is, like, how many people do you have? <laughs> and I say, how many people do you have? And, you know, they say things like 300 million. Can you believe it? <laughs> This was not in a journal story. And as for Fox, you know, Fox is, um, I mean, th this gets back to this issue of we, we don't have, um, it's not that we disagree on the facts, it's that there's no starting point anymore. I mean, there's no, there's no agreed reality we can argue about. And Fox is, is one side of that. And it's um, just... I mean, O.J. Simpson just walked free from prison, and the first time I, you know that sense you had during the O.J. Simpson trial that different parts of America were just listening to different things, or how else could you understand what was going on? And I mean, to m it was absolutely clear he'd murdered them. Uh, but, but anyway, it was, uh, it was uh, that's a, but you know, the, I think that's it, we've gone exponentially further now in this fracture this American fracture. And I think this American fracture is very, very worrying. Just to give you, to wind up, a little illustration of how far it's gone. Um, I watched a lot of Fox when I was over there just to try and get a sense yeah. of where it was at. And uh, one of the five, I'm sure you know the five, it's an afternoon or an evening show. And there's a guy called Jesse Waters who was sitting in the middle, the uh, the... Republicans had just failed to get health care through the Congress. A disaster for them, a hugely embarrassing failure. Uh, and Jesse said, well, I wish Donald Trump was a dictator so that he could get this thing through without a sense of irony, without any humour, and barely a peep. And that's where that is at. And when you're at that stage, uh, obviously you're not much of a news organisation anymore, but it speaks to just how far out and how far apart from each other those 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 uh, those people are so we're going to leave it there thank you very much i think the only thing we can do is go and get a drink <laughs> may fong roger cohen christina lamb kerry o'brien thanks very much guys I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.